Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Winning the Heisman Trophy isn't always about stats, but an art form that's been perfected over decades. And my next guest dissects that and more right here. It's time for the College Football Legends Podcast. The players. We're going to hit somebody and we're taking down the field for a touchdown. I guarantee you that. The coaches. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The plays. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way back. And so much more. College football legends. Heroes come and go, but legends live forever. Believe in college football legends on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Chris Smith. What are the three most beautiful words a sports fan can hear? Football is back. The wait is over, my friend, and even though you might not be at the game this year, you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any other place online. Plus, there's always that online casino as well. The best part about it, it never closes. You can play 24-7. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. It's the only place to go. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. And speaking of odds, how about just one? That's right, just one player each season gets to have his name called after. The winner of this year's Heisman Trophy is... Now, the Heisman Trophy winner didn't suddenly appear on stage. It begins before even the season starts with the Heisman hype campaigns. Some invent a new statistic or even change their last name. There's giveaways, full body of work resumes, offensive schemes, and maybe a little unknown bias. That's why I'm excited to have my next guest who can break it all down, Chris Houston, Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. So the Heisman campaigns have become really elaborate. Some players, life-size billboard in New York Times Square, Joey Harrington, to the simple Heisman tie of BYU's Ty Detmer. Uh, How far back in history was the start of the Heisman hype campaigns? They started doing uh, little bits and pieces in the early 60s. Some of the sports information directors at that time, uh, some of those players like Terry Baker and uh, Roger Staubach, they would send out clippings to the beat writers and reporters across the country. Now you have to remember back then they play, you know, the voters didn't get to see a lot of the games. Yeah. Uh, Not like now where every game's very, on television, there's internet. Exactly. Exactly. There's a, there was really a poor access to information back then. Or if you got it, it took a while, which is why there would often be a lag time in, uh, uh, in the vote based, uh, you know, compared to what was going on on the field. So, uh, there, was a, there wasn't any big campaigns in the early 60s, but there was just kind of the first startings of, of uh, you know, media uh, information uh, that the sports information directors were sending to. Uh, I'd say uh, in 1970, Joe Theismann of Notre Dame, he mm-hmm. finished uh, second, second in the uh, Heisman. Uh, his name was originally pronounced Theismann. <laughs> with the Notre Dame sports information director changed it to that's Heisman, a PR that was, move. <laughs> yeah, that's a great move, and uh, it's Heisman for Heisman. So uh, that would be one of the the first early ones. I think you go to uh, 1977 and Earl Campbell, and they came up with a great stat: yards after contact. 
which they started keeping track of on behalf of Earl Campbell. And it's one of those great stats that is not only useful and and gives you a good idea of a player's impact, but it also uh, it's something that people can also keep an eye on and and it kind of captures the imagination of voters. So that was a, a really uh, smart campaign uh, that didn't cost anything. And uh, it really helped uh, put a good context for Earl Campbell's season in 1977. Do the actual uh, like giveaways that they send out, like the D'Angelo Williams diecast car, or the Heisman tie, does that work? Or are SIDs in the, the public relations departments doing the right thing with that? Some work better than others. But I would say that any kind of marketing on behalf of a product works as good as any other kind of marketing on behalf of a product, except in this case, these are players and not products. But the product is the idea of them as a Heisman candidate. And so uh, to some, for some reason, it's often a question as to whether Heisman campaigns work. Uh, but corporations spend billions of dollars on marketing for a reason, and that is because marketing works. <laughs> so uh, all these campaigns are is, is – Telling people, hey, this is this is the player. This is getting their name out, getting people familiar, comfortable with the idea of a player as a great player or a player who should win the Heisman. And again, some of these are better than others. It's certainly possible, I think, to put out a bad Heisman campaign that doesn't have any effect. Uh, but I think there's also ways to put out good Heisman campaigns, like we saw in 1977, and uh, like we've seen in some recent years. But uh, even looking at sometimes. You don't even have to have a successful Heisman campaign in order for the campaign to be successful. And by that, I mean, you could look at the case of Joey Harrington in 2001. He was put on a billboard in Times Square, as you alluded to earlier. Yes. But the, the, the Heisman campaign does more than just win the Heisman. It also creates visibility for the program. It increases the visibility of the player. It showcases uh, the program's commitment to their players. And it and really... You, you don't see um, run-of-the-mill programs putting billboards in Times Square. It, it was Oregon's entry into the, you know, into the big boys of college athletics. And I think if you trace the rise of Oregon football in the, uh, the mindset of the college football world, you would have to trace it back to its decision to put Joey Harrington on a billboard in Times Square because they were saying, we are an important program. We are a national program. And this is, this is our proof. We're putting our money where our mouth is. And we're speaking with Chris Houston, Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com. And going back, like we were talking about that before the birth of the Internet and not every game was on television, the award was primarily given to a senior, even a junior. Was it more of a full resume award? Did you notice any trends back in the day where... You know, the, Herschel Walker had an outstanding freshman season, and nowadays it feels like he, he could have won the Heisman then but didn't win it till later on. So is it more of a full resume award back then? Uh, it just – back then it was – see, back then they knew that you had, they had the guy for four years, or in some cases three, you know, depending on when freshman became eligible from 1972 onward. But before that, you knew there was three years. So if they, if they showed up in the – consciousness of, of the Heisman electorate as a sophomore and you had a you had also a bunch of seniors among your selections and you had to choose all things being equal you know say uh, candidate a had a thousand yards rushing and candidate b had a thousand yards rushing and you would they would tend to go with the senior or the junior because they knew that the the other candidate would have a couple more shots at it and then hey if they truly were great players they'd be back there anyway. Sure. And so it ended, it ended up being sort of a de facto 
combination of career and individual season. Uh, there was no career that was going to overcome Barry Sanders' individual season of 1988. Uh, it, there, it was one of those things that overwhelmed uh, the two Heisman favorites at the time, who were Rodney Pete and Troy Aikman, uh, the USC and UCLA, respectively. So sometimes the numbers just overwhelm all considerations for, for everything else. But when you have a situation where the individual numbers are not overwhelming, pretty much everything goes into consideration. You know, how well, how well they've done over the course of their career, you know, how, uh, how upstanding are they, how, how well did their team play this year, did they play well in big games. All these things are taken into account, and I think that uh, just like it would be taken into account if a player broke the NCAA record for rushing yards in a career, which almost every uh, high player who has done that uh, until the, until recently, when they started having more games, almost every player who's done that has won the Heisman. These are see these types of accomplishments are seen as important because because it really shows that you've come you know into a place where no one else has come before you. Sure. And can you give me an example of an individual uh, better season but lost to a player who was considered due for his entire body of work? Sure. Uh, you know you'd probably look at arguably Herschel Walker himself. So in 1982. Herschel Walker beat out John Elway, who was the runner-up for Stanford. I believe Eric Dickerson of SMU uh, had just as good a numbers as Herschel Walker that year. And Anthony Carter, the wide receiver of Michigan, had a really outstanding year as well. So, ironically, one of the great players in Heisman history probably had his worst season as a, as a senior, whereas he was arguably had his best season as a freshman. So, uh, I think there's possibly a case of, of someone who – whose career uh, considerations carried over. Bo Jackson uh, was another guy who, uh, you know, he won in one of the closest races uh, in Heisman history. At the time, it was the closest. And his uh, 1985 year was pretty good, but he missed a couple games, I believe. And uh, Chuck Long of Iowa was really outstanding that year. Robbie Bosco at BCU, I'm sorry, at BYU. And uh, Lorenzo White actually led the nation in rushing for Michigan State. So he had a better year than Bo Jackson. Of course, people recognize that it's not always the numbers. Sometimes you just have great players, and the numbers are not always an indicator. But uh, those are two examples of situations where the, the career accomplishments of a player uh, held some precedence over whatever someone had done individually that year. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You were mentioned in a lot of running backs, and at one point there were 11 straight running backs to win the Heisman. What do you think the biggest factors are, and uh, why does the trend seem to change seemingly every decade of if it's a quarterback? Yeah, it's interesting. They had, uh, you know, you have the era when the, uh, the single platoon, which was in the 40s and 50s, they had some real crazy substitution rules up until the early 60s when they, they, they came back to uh, or they came to a, a two-platoon era. Before that, pretty much everyone played uh, both ways. And so uh, when you, once you got to that two-platoon era, you had some new offensive systems that were sort of freed up to be able to develop. And one of those things was the I-formation, which became the dominant offensive system throughout the 60s and the 70s and most, a lot of the 80s. And in football, at both at all levels of football, the I formation sort of became the foundational um, system. And because of that, and also because of other great systems like the wishbone and the flexbone, the veer, uh, a lot of option-based systems that came out of uh, the 60s and 70s were also very popular during that era. So because of that, 
and wishbone, of course, was completely run-oriented with very very little passing. So you had this stretch where were all these running backs won in a row, uh, and they were all either I-formation or our wishbone runners. Yeah, and, and uh, with all the so current high-powered offensive systems now, do you think any other players have a chance other than quarterback or running back? Well, they have as much a chance as, as they did back then because – the spread era obviously is, has allowed for, for the spread quarterback to be the dominant player of the last decade. But defensive players are, are just as uh, going to have just as good of a chance, which is a, harsh, a long shot chance. And receivers, of course, have always had to have something else in addition to their, to their receiving end of their, of their uh, position, like kickoff returns or vers- other versatilities, to really have a chance to win. And so I, I think that when you look at it, it's always been about how close are you to the ball. When you're watching a football game, people follow the ball. The ball is really the most important thing in the game. So quarterbacks touch the ball in every play. This gives them a chance to affect what the ball is doing far more ch- more times than a running back can. And, of course, a running back can affect the, what happens to the ball that much more times than a receiver can. Receiver is dependent upon the ball being uh, delivered to him and a lot of things can go wrong along the way so maybe a receiver might get one to ten touches a, a game whereas a running back could get 20 or 30 and a quarterback will touch it in every play so it's just about opportunities to show what you can do with the ball and that's sort of been the penchant for Heisman voters to pay attention to and there have been a lot of great defensive players and a few offensive linemen who have been able to break through the noise and sort of showcase what they can do at their position but I think until we get better metrics for, for how well a player is playing on the, as a nose tackle or as a left tackle or, or as a tight end, until we get better metrics to really measure those things, I think it's going to be very hard for those players to win. Yeah, because every year I, I feel like I see the preseason top five Heisman hopeful list comes out, and a defensive player, is, it seems like is always on it every year. That's just not a list to make it more interesting. There's a, a defensive player who's going to be mentioned as having a chance to compete for the Heisman. And, and look, Char- Charles Woodson was a two-way player, but he also but he played primarily defense. So it's possible, but it would really take a, from, in my opinion, I think it takes a real sort of aligning of the planets for it to happen. Yeah. And we're speaking with Chris Houston, Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com. And how's the college football playoff affected the voting? Just anything uh, too, mu- too much that's changed about that, I think you're definitely seeing, seeing we're playing more games, first of all. The playoff happens after the Heisman, of course, but players are playing uh, 12 games, sometimes 13 regular season, and then they're playing often, oftentimes a, a conference championship game. So, so whereas Tom Harmon uh, had only eight games in which his Heisman was awarded, we're getting players who are, who are playing 13 or 14 games before getting to the Heisman in some cases. We always hear about the West Coast, East Coast bias all the time. Does a power conference such as like the SEC, do they get favoritism or play a role in, in getting a There's Heisman? No evidence. There's no evidence of it. There really isn't. I mean, you can say, oh, uh, West Coast games start later. But again, every, every game is available if you want to watch it. it basically... There's just no evidence of it. It's something that people talk about, West Coast bias, East Coast bias. If there's any bias, it's, it's that team will get more attention. And the more attention you get, the better known your players are. Yeah. Well, and, that's, and that's just human nature. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about the college football playoff. It feels like everybody's focus is on 
you know, who are the top four teams at the time, but they're not looking at uh, right. the yeah. 10th ranked team. That's, that's actually the point. It, the college football playoff has created a real focus. Go back to that original question, which I was thinking about it in terms of how does it help players, but I'm actually the biggest impact that the college football playoff has is that it takes attention away from attention on the Heisman because it used to be that everyone was racing for to win their conference and this was the focus and the Heisman always had their had their uh, their own kind of uh, silo of attention and then I was well playoff and, and the fact that it's a 14 playoff which means that at any one time there's probably eight to 15 teams talk, you know thinking they can get into the playoff then you have not as much focus on on the Heisman of course so I think what the college football playoff does is it kind of sucks a little bit of air out of the room when it comes to a lot of the things we used to discuss in college football. Well, even though some focus is on other parts of the college football picture, one thing is for certain, the Heisman Memorial Trophy still remains the most legendary award in all of college sports. A big thanks to my guest, Chris Houston, Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Chris. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the College Football Legend podcast. Tweet your questions at the Sports Jesus. That's at the Sports Jesus. And join us next week because it will be legendary. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E. AV on YouTube.